crud, you could probably download one on your phone before you could get one out of the chair. But they are available there, and Psalms is right smack in the middle of your Bible. Psalm chapter 49, one of my favorite psalms. Let me read Psalm 49 to you. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth speaks wisdom. The meditations of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should, see lot, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain, he is like the beast that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts, Selah. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Selah. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, it, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go down to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Man, in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. This has become one of my favorite psalms, uh, though maybe seeming a little dreary at first, I assure you it's not, and I'd like to take a look at it today. Uh, if you've read through the book of Psalms, you'll know that Psalms is divided up into five smaller books. Each of these five books inside the Psalms uh, kind of coordinates with uh, the first five books of the Bible. We call it the Pentateuch that, that was written by, uh, by Moses. And so we, we start out in book one, and book one of Psalms is coordinate to Genesis, but here in uh, the 49th Psalm, we are in book two of Psalms, which is coordinate to the book of Exodus. Now, if you don't know the story of Exodus, uh, it bears very much in terms of history on celebrating Easter. But the story of Exodus is the story of God freeing his people from slavery in the, the nation of Egypt. And so uh, if you know your uh, history in Genesis, you know that Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery. And then uh, during a, a great famine, his family came down there to live in Egypt where he had come into a place of incredible authority in the nation of Egypt. But pharaohs came and went and forgot who Joseph was and they enslaved the nation of Israel. 
And for 400 years, Israel was captive in slavery to, uh, to Egypt and to the pharaohs, building cities and making brick and, and all of these things. Now, God raises up from the nation of Israel a man by the name of Moses. And he calls Moses to, to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And so Moses, after great uh, hesitation, and if you want to see why it's a bad idea to argue with God, you just might take a look at Moses and, and his experience. And ultimately, God wins out in this argument, as he always does, and Moses goes to Pharaoh. And Moses is given signs and wonders to prove that he is a messenger sent from God. And, and Moses begins to perform these signs and wonders that God gave him to do. And these are the ten plagues of Egypt that ultimately culminate in the death of the firstborn. And God told his people to, to take a lamb... Uh, and this is celebrated at Passover, which Passover and Easter are connected. It was Thursday night, probably, that Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples. And it's a meal that commemorates these events. Uh, and the, the Israelites were instructed to take a lamb, to slaughter it, and then to take a hyssop branch like a paintbrush and to paint the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their house. And during this final plague, when the angel of the Lord came over the nation of Israel and put to death the firstborn of all people and cattle and everything, and there was great mourning and sorrow in Egypt, the people were spared from the death of their firstborn, having painted this blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their house. And so they, uh, Pharaoh, in great agony at this point, tells the nation of Israel, you may leave. And they pack up and they go. And immediately, again, Pharaoh changes his mind and chases down the nation of Israel. And they're stuck between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. And God tells Moses to, uh, to raise his staff and, and God parts the seas, uh, the, the waters of the Red Sea, and they cross over on dry land. Pharaoh goes chasing after them and the sea collapses on Pharaoh. And now they are free from Egypt, only to find themselves in other dangers and other hardships and in the desert and without food and without water and they begin to grumble and they begin to complain and, and God sends them to, uh, to the promised land where Israel is today uh, to spy it out and he says, you are to go in and take over this land that I'm going to give you. And of course the people are afraid and so they don't. Only Joshua and Caleb of the spies who were sent in say, the Lord will give these people into our hands. We can do this by God's help. And because of their lack of faith, God sends them to wander in the desert for 40 years where there is all of these dangers until that generation dies before he brings the, the, next, uh, the next generation into this promised land under the leadership of Joshua. In fact, only Joshua and Caleb of that whole generation were allowed to enter into the promised land. Well, what does that story have to do with this psalm? Well, that is the context of this psalm. There's, um, there's been a lot of talk, if I could change gears for a moment. Since the 1940s, there was a book that came out uh, post or maybe even during the end of World War II that, that took a lot uh, of uh, of K 
care to talk about the difference between uh, shame cultures and guilt cultures. And at the time this book was published in 1946, there was this contrast between the shame culture of Japan, one of the nations that we went to war with, and, and this guilt culture of the U.S. Uh, guilt cultures use guilt as a motivator. This idea of fear of punishment. Shame cultures use dishonor as a motivator. The idea being uh, fear of ostracism, fear of being cut off from the people. However, in the years since that book was written, there's been much research done on introducing to us a third category of culture, and that is a fear culture, where fear is used to motivate, and, and, and retribution is what is promised to those who, who do not live up to this category, or this, this ideology in the culture. It seems as though today we live in maybe more of a fear culture than a guilt culture that we once lived in. There's fear of death, fear of sickness, fear of society, fear of what somebody might say about you on social media, fear of humiliation. And I think we may see some similarities between the context of the nation of Israel coming out of slavery and us today. That there are dangers at every turn. As soon as we thought we were in the clear of COVID, what was the next headline? Oh, there's a new disease. I heard it on the radio just this week. There's another new disease. Guess what? There's always going to be another new disease. We're afraid of getting sick. We're afraid of certain people being elected. We're afraid of what others might think of us. We're afraid of what others might say of us, even publicly. Dangers abound. And as the nation of Israel wandered through the desert, dangers abounded. Where will we get our food? Well, what about this nation that threatens to overtake us? How will we get into the promised land? Pharaoh's army is pursuing us once again. And within that context of the constant danger and struggle of fear, we find this psalm. And I want to show you how this psalm unfolds, kind of in four acts. The first one is the company of hearers. The company of hearers. The psalmist says, hear this all peoples, give ear all inhabitants of the world. This is not an address to some, this is not an address merely to the nation of Israel. In fact, the word for world in the Hebrew here is an incredibly rare one, particularly in Hebrew poetry. And it points us to the fact that the psalmist is telling us that he is going to give us a message that the whole world needs to hear, both low and high, rich and poor, whatever your social status, whatever your ethnic status, whatever your economic status, wherever it is you live in the world, this message is for you. And then in four unfolding statements, the psalmist really tries to draw us into the importance of his message. He says, my mouth shall speak wisdom. In fact, in Hebrew, this is plural, my mouth shall speak wisdoms. The idea here is probably the idea of great wisdom, much 
wisdom. We see the same thing with the next one. The meditations of my heart shall be understanding. Uh, Great wisdom and great meditations. I will incline my ear to a proverb and I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. This is an important thing he wants us to hear. And then he begins with this question that points us in verses 5 through 12 to the second act of Psalm 49, uh, the common experience of death. He says, why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surround me and those who trust in their wealth and the abundance of their riches? Now, certainly this does not say, why should I be afraid of death? The psalmist asks the question, why should I fear in times of trouble? However, the context of the rest of the psalm is death. And so we've, we've got to see that, that we have this common experience. The psalmist is asking us, why should we be afraid of wandering in the desert? Or of growing old? Or the uncertainty of the future? or of the size of our retirement, or our health, or those who oppress us, or a nation that might draw against us to attack us, why should we be afraid? Why should we fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, when those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. And then the psalmist gives us three common experiences to death. The first is that the common experience that we don't have to be afraid of death. That's why he's asking this question. This is the riddle he is seeking to solve for us. We've probably all experienced circumstances that might make us either wish we were dead or feel like we were dying. We've probably all in this room been to the point of despair, be it through circumstances or oppression or health or anything else. We, uh, the statement here is particularly about oppression. When, when the oppressors of Egypt, whether it's wandering in the desert or a chasing army or, or the slavery of the people in the nation, whatever it is that is oppressing them at that time, they don't have to be afraid. J. Vernon McGee says this of this particular passage. He says, why does God permit some people to become so rich? What is going to happen to them? Why do they get by with so much and seem not to have the same trouble as other men? There is a clique today in this country that is made up of the rich and influential. At election time, they talk to us and they tell us how wonderful, intelligent, and lovely we are because they want us to vote for their candidates. The question is, why does God permit them to get by with so much? Why doesn't God do something about it? What an apropos question for our times. Oppression is front and center in the news. Whether it's real or perceived, whether we believe it's going on or don't don't believe it's going on, the question before us is ultimately, why does God let this happen? And if he does let it happen, or since he let it happen, or lets it happen, If it costs us our life, why don't we have to be afraid? Well, the psalmist has not yet answered that question, 
But he is going to. And he is clearly telling us that whatever it is that oppresses us, whatever it is that threatens death, we don't have to be afraid. The second common experience that we all, uh, that we all share is that you cannot buy your way out of death. Look at verses 7 through 9. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. Verse 7 starts with the word truly. In other words, the psalmist is saying, all you have to do is observe the world to see that this is true. It does not matter how wealthy someone is. They cannot buy their way out of death. It does not matter how much they can pay to doctors, how good their health insurance is, what access to medical care they have. There is no way out of it. You cannot pay your way out of the experience. It doesn't matter how much you have. Everyone has an appointment with death. And we cannot buy our way out of it because the price of our life is costly. There is no one who is that wealthy. And there is no one who can pay for the life of someone else. The wealthy are shocked at times to find out that there are things that are not for sale. They imagine that in their infinite supply of resources, at least in this life, that ultimately there is a price for everything. But life is not one of those things. Life is precious as we are all made in the image of God, and none of us can afford to pay our way out of death. And the final common experience, the first common experience, is that we don't have to be afraid of death. We'll talk more about that. You cannot buy your way out of death. And then the psalmist tells us you cannot bypass death. Look at with me at verses 10 through 12. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generation. Though they call lands by their own names, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beast that perish. There's no way around it. Death, even for Jesus, whose resurrection we celebrate today, is a universal reality. People name lands by their own names. You can name a farm after yourself. You can name a, uh, a state after yourself. You can even name a street after yourself. But someday the farm is going to be renamed. The street is going to be renamed. You can leave a fortune to someone else, but it's still going to be squandered. It doesn't take long, as Solomon reminds us in Ecclesiastes, to be forgotten by history. You can, buy, you can take all your treasures, you can, you can spend your life acquiring earthly possessions, and you can put them in a vault underground, you can hide them in a safety deposit box, you can put them in the most secure of investments. You can't even, when the bank closes, think that the government might come in and restore your fortunes and say, this is mine, no one can take it from me, but there is one who can take it all from us. He is the Lord, and he will call us all to stand before him someday and to give an account in our lives. And when we stand before him after our death or at his return, we will not have any of those things from this life to take with us and to offer him to try and buy our way out of death or bypass our way around it. 
It's long been said, you never see a a U-Haul following a hearse. Nobody takes their treasures with them. When I was in high school long ago, there was this popular brand of t-shirts that was called No Fear. And uh, I had this shirt that instead of No Fear said, Fear Not. And, And on the front of it, it read, He who dies with the most toys still dies. Because in the end, you can't take any of that with you. And you can't bypass it. In that day, there's nothing we can offer him that he does not already have because for him and through him and from him and to him are all things. There's no bribe he will receive. You cannot buy your way out of that day and you cannot bypass it no matter how hard you try. And so the psalmist wants us to to start out on this foot of understanding we don't have to be afraid of death. And I, I think there's a universal fear of death. I mean, those of us who have hope in Christ, who know what is coming in the next life, who are trusting in his righteousness and his life and his death and his resurrection, and who say we're not afraid of death, I think there's probably still some fear of death for us. Because the truth of the matter is, I'm not afraid to be dead. I know where I'm going. I know that death can only deliver me to Jesus. I just don't want to be there when it happens. You know, but the psalmist is saying, you don't have to be afraid. You can't bypass it. You can't buy your way out of it, but you don't have to be afraid. And then here, starting in verse 13, he gives us this uh, third movement of this psalm, and he talks about the contrasting experiences in death. And I believe... What we see next, uh, oh, somebody got the spelling right. I got the spelling wrong in my notes, but the slides are right. So somebody's smarter than I am. That's really, really good. These contrasting experiences in death is that there are those, and let's just go ahead and put up points A and point, point B at the same time, is that there are those whose confidence is in themselves. And then there are those whose confidence is in the Lord. Look with me at verses 13 through 15. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Selah. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. It's just another term for the grave. This is not a reference to heaven or hell particularly, but just the grave. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. The first side of this coin in these contrasting experiences is those whose confidence is in themselves, who trust in their own goodness, their own wealth, their own merit, their own righteousness, their own abilities, their own whatever to overcome the problem. And there is a wealth of people, as we see in verse 13, who will approve of their boasts. There will be some who say, I've seen this in countless movies when somebody's dying and they're like, what's going to happen to me? And, and it's this dramatic moment and the response is, oh, don't worry about it. God owes us one. Or there is an abundance of people who will tell you, you are good enough just like you are. There are those who 
who tell us that, well, if you just do enough good things to overcome the bad things, this, these cosmic scales will tip in your favor. But the reality is that's not how any of it works. And that's what the whole first half of this psalm is pointing to, uh, to out to us. That death, the consequence for our sin, is coming for us all. You don't get to escape it. We say that there's uh, that the, the two certain things are death and taxes, but certainly the first is more certain. People get away without paying their taxes. People get away with covering it up and hiding things. But death is coming for us all. And it's coming for us all because we have all transgressed God's law. We have all broken his law. He put Adam and Eve in the garden and told them not to eat of one tree. And they ate. And it's really easy for us in our pride to say, man, I wish I'd have been in the garden. I'd have done better. But the reality is every single day when I sin, I just ratify that I would have made the exact same choice. And so we're sinners by nature, and we're sinners by choice. And the wages of sin, Romans 3.23, is death. If God owed us one, if we could buy our way out of the grave with our good works, with our obedience, with whatever it is we believe that will curry favor with God, we wouldn't die. But our death stands as a picture that we owe this debt of death to God that we have earned because of our sin. And so I would ask you, if you were to stand before God today and he were to ask you, why should he let you into his heaven, what would your answer be? And I would really encourage you to take a moment and truly think about that because we see in verse 13 that this is the path of the foolish confidence and that there are many people who will approve of their boasts. And then we get this little word, selah, this musical term that most likely means something like rest. This is the musical interlude of this song where we're called to pause to reflect on this question. And so take a moment. What would your answer be? If God called you to judgment today, if he did not tarry any longer and he returned and suddenly we were all standing before Christ and he looked at you and said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your answer be? The reality is, verse 14 like sheep, we're all appointed to die. And death will shepherd us into the grave. But when you get there, what reason should it be that God lets you in? If your answer started with the word, I, then your confidence just might be in the wrong place. Well, I've been good. Well, I haven't done anything really bad. The next wrong answer might even shock you a little bit. Well, I believed in Jesus. Now, that might be the right answer, but it might be the wrong answer. Because the right answer is, well, I've trusted that Christ has earned 
my salvation for me? That just might be the right answer. But if, it's, if the emphasis is on I, I believed, I know, I have trusted, I, 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 it very well could be that a knowledge of the right thing has not yet brought us to faith in Christ. We can't trust in ourselves. Why? Well, this brings us to the next point of this, uh, this contrasting experience in death, and that is those whose confidence is in the Lord. Verse 15, notice what the psalmist here says, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. God will pay the price. That's what a ransom is. God will buy me back from death, for he will receive me. No man, verse 7, can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. Verse 15, God must ransom our soul. Only God can buy that. Only God can pay that price. The final movement of the psalm is the psalmist's conclusion, verses 16 through 20, which in many ways is just a restatement of what's already been presented of us. Be not afraid. The question is turned into a commandment. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he, will di- when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For although while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul, too, will go down to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perishes. Men in his pomp, in his wealth, in his riches, in his self-perceived goodness, yet without real understanding that our lives are costly and can't be bought and only God can pay that price is like the beast that perishes. But while this psalm tells us that God will save us, it's a little bit of a cliffhanger. It doesn't tell us how. It gives us the truth that God will save us, But it doesn't tell us how. And when we look at redemptive history, when we study God's word, we see that our sin threatens God's good design over and over and over. Over and over again, there is this climactic problem presented into the story of God's redemption. Initially, God put us in the garden and Adam and Eve sinned. And they were expelled from the blessing of God, condemned to death, both physical and spiritual. We see that this is told to us, as I've already said in Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. And so we're left with this problem that sin requires death and we're all sinners. We're all transgressors of God's law. And the proof is in the fact that all of us die. Compounded is the problem that no man can purchase the life of another. Psalm 49, 7 through 9. So how did God overcome all of this? Well, he sends his son. Eternally God. The second member of the Trinity. Jesus Christ. 
the righteous, to be born of a virgin. But the question is, why is that the plan? Well, we're still presented with a problem. In fact, we kind of have dueling problems. On the one hand, in order for sin to be atoned for, in order for that ransom to be paid, something has to die. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So on the one hand, something has to die. And on the other hand, there is no one who has enough possession or whose life is valuable enough to pay the price that God's justice demands. You might think to yourself, well, how can our sin be that big of a problem? Well, what makes our sin such a huge debt is because it is against the infinite dignity of God. And because we sin and defy his infinite dignity, infinite glory, infinite beauty, infinite power, all of our sin is infinitely wicked. And so as sinners, we have to die. And as creatures who are created by God, we aren't valuable enough to buy the life of another. So the first problem is something has to die and no one is valuable enough to pay that price. The second problem is is that the psalmist says that God will redeem us. And there is another problem that confronts us with that. If something has to die, God is going to have to pay that price. But since he is God, well, he can't die. And we see the problem. And this is where Jesus comes in. This is where the eternal God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who is alone, uncreated, becomes a part of his creation. I don't think we can fathom just how far he humbled himself as he came out of heaven to become one of us. And born to a virgin some 2,000 years ago is the God-man, the solution to all of these problems, who as man is able to die, And who as God is able to make an infinitely valuable payment that can cover the price of sin. A payment that is valuable enough to redeem another. In fact, Jesus at his crucifixion as we read Friday night was asked two questions by the Sanhedrin as he's being tried wrongfully by them. Are you the Christ, the Messiah, The the son of man who was promised of God, who would redeem his people, who would save his people. Are you the Christ, the son of God? Are you telling us, Jesus, that you are the God-man? The man come to save, but also God. And he responds in the affirmative. And they say, what more do we need to hear? He is guilty of death. We see this also in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8, telling us that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, don't make too much of the word form there in English. This is absolutely a statement that Jesus existed as God. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant 
and being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we see that both of these things are true, the form of God and the likeness of man, as man able to die, as God infinitely valuable. And so what he does is he comes, born of a virgin, and lives the perfect sinless life that you and I never lived. In fact, I think that if Jesus would have not been crucified, he would have lived forever. Because he owed no debt of death. And because of his innocence, when he goes to the cross, condemned to death wrongfully, you want to talk about oppression? He was arrested at night illegally, tried at night illegally. People were uh, paid to bear false testimony against him. It is the ultimate picture of oppression that led to death. But in his sinless life, when he goes to the cross, he doesn't go there to pay his debt. He goes there to pay mine. He goes there to ransom me. He goes there to pay the price for my life. See, part of the reason no man can ransom another is not just because nobody's valuable enough, but because we all owe a debt of death. I can't die in your place because that's just dying a death I deserve. But Jesus deserves no death. And he goes to the cross and he dies in our place, condemned of God. And he's buried in a grave that you and I deserve to be buried in. But an absolute vindication of not only the acceptability of his sinless life and his death as our substitute, God, by the power of the Spirit, raises him from the grave three days later. When Jesus says, I come that you may have life and have it to the full, it's not an empty promise. We don't have to wonder where the proof of the promise is. He is the one who has life and gives life because he was sinless where we were not. And he paid the price for our sin in in his death and offers life to all who would trust him. And Paul tells us, as we've read this morning in 1 Corinthians, that he would remind us of the gospel that he preached, that is the good news that he preached, and which we received, in which we stand, and by which we are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians 15 instruct us all how to respond to the knowledge of the eternal existence of the Son of God who became a man and lived our sinless life and died our death and was buried in our grave and was resurrected by the power of of an indestructible life. We are told here how to respond. We hear this good news and we begin to stand in it. To stand in it through faith. And then when we begin to stand in it through faith, we are saved by it and we hold fast. And so my question for us all this morning is, what are you counting on? What hope do you have in death? 
Maybe you're hearing this for the first time. Your, your responsibility in hearing this message today is to stop trusting yourself, to stop thinking you're good enough, and start trusting Christ. I'm here to tell you it won't be easy. If you're thinking, man, I just trust Jesus and my life is all roses from here on out, that is not how it works. I mean, eternally, yes. But in this life, it's the hardest thing you'll ever do. We begin by faith in trusting him. And by the way, that, that faith, it requires more than knowledge. It's not just knowing something that's true about Jesus. It requires faith and repentance. And repentance isn't just being sorry. It's turning away from the sin that we so cherished before Christ. It's trading a trusting in ourselves for a trusting in God. It's trading trusting our ways for trusting his ways. In Acts chapter 2, right after the Spirit was given and, and Peter goes out and preaches this Pentecost sermon, the people hear it uh, were cut to the heart, Acts 2, 37, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. And is turn around, turn away from your sin. Stop trusting in yourself and your ways and start trusting in God's ways and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. By the way, in case you're wondering about this passage, and I could show this to you later, when it says here, for the forgiveness of your sin, it is not saying that, that uh, forgiveness of sin results from baptism. It's saying that, that uh, you are to repent, you are to be baptized on account of the forgiveness of your sin. You don't get baptized and then have your sins forgiven. When you repent of your sin and turn to Christ in faith and trust him and his goodness and his life and his death and his resurrection, you are saved, you are forgiven, and then you respond through baptism with this picture of identification with his death and burial and resurrection. Or maybe somewhere along the line, you started trusting Jesus and have shifted to trusting yourself. Maybe, maybe you think that you have standing with God today because of your obedience. This is probably pretty easy to sniff out. If you look outside of the doors of the church and go, I'm glad I'm not like that. You're probably trusting yourself and your own righteousness more than the righteousness of Christ. Because the, the proper response of faith when we've trusted Christ and are depending upon him is to look out at the world and go, I am just like that. Thank you, Lord, for redeeming me, for ransoming me, for paying the price for my life. If you're trusting in your ways, if you started out, as Paul tells to the Galatians, you started out through faith, but now think you can obey the law and earn God's favor, go back. Go back and remember where you were at first when you simply trusted Jesus. Because once we hear and believe, then we stand and hold fast. See, Jesus isn't just a ticket to heaven. And he's not a ticket to your best life now. He is 
the infinitely glorious Lord who died in our place and rose again, offering us life. There was a cross, and it was the instrument of how God paid for our sins, how the God-man can ransom our lives, how God has bought us out of the power of Sheol and paid a costly enough price that did suffice. And how do we know it sufficed? How do we know it was good enough? Well, there was a cross, and there is an empty tomb. What you do with that has eternal significance. What will you do? What will you do? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us to our own devices to try and figure out a way to redeem ourselves, to buy ourselves back, to somehow cross the infinite chasm between your perfect righteousness and our sinfulness. But rather, knowing that we could never ransom ourselves or redeem ourselves, you sent your Son, being born as a man and able to die in our place, but existing eternally as God, so as to make an infinitely valuable payment to cover not only my infinitely wicked sins, but the sins of all who would come to you in faith and repentance. Lord, for those here who may be hearing this for the first time or hearing it for the first time with clarity, would you bring about repentance that leads to life? Would you give new life to dead souls as you gave life to Christ's dead body in the grave three days later? And for those of us who are so prone to trust ourselves, our obedience, our righteousness, our works, to continue in the faith, would you help us to return to the place where we trust you, where we are not counting upon ourselves or our merits, but where we simply look to Christ, who is who has earned all favor, who was treated as though he was a sinner so that we as sinners might be treated as though we are righteous and let our confidence and our boast be in him. Lord, may today, may you be glorified not only in our thoughts and our hearts and in our, our minds, but, uh, but in our joy as we respond to the glory of the good news of your life and death and resurrection to redeem us from the power of the grave, to pay the price we couldn't pay for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.